Turn to your neighbour and say, it is well. And that is our assurance. Whatever we're going through, whatever we're struggling with, it is well. How do we learn to draw from what Christ has placed within us and overcome all the issues, emotional, mental, spiritual. Well, today we're going to look into this topic. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to take just a couple of verses which come from Jesus as he answers a question. The question comes from one of the religious lawyers. Now, when you talk about lawyers, you think about a certain kind of person, maybe who asks awkward questions. And when you think about religious people and the kind of questions they might ask, maybe are little questions that make you feel bad about yourself. But when you put religion and religious people together with a legal mind and lawyers, you're going to come up with the mother of all questions. And because this question comes from a lawyer, we think about the golden rule of lawyering. You're told as a lawyer, if you go into court and you are asking questions to bring out facts of a witness or defense or prosecution, never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. And that way you can't lead the trial on in the way you want it to go. So I venture to suggest that this lawyer, though he asks the question of Jesus, he already had his own answer. And he was setting Jesus up so that he could come in and guide the conversation in the direction of his own religious legal mind. So what was the question? The question was this. Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Let's notice the topic here. He's a religious lawyer, and at that time, religious life seemed to consist only in examining the laws, the religious laws, the laws of Moses, and, and how to handle those laws, and what was the correct interpretation of those laws, and when could it be defined that you'd fulfilled those laws, and when you had to obey enough laws so that you could get some kind of assurance that you're going to be accepted by God. It was all legalistic. But Jesus takes this legalistic question and turns it into his theme, his agenda. And, and Jesus' whole ministry was, it's not about religion, it's about relationship with God. So the lawyer's question, which is the greatest commandment? Here is Jesus' reply. Love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. One out of every four people in Britain suffers from some form of mental disorder. Some of the most common ones are depression. Do you know that amongst young people, 25% of people in their 20s suffer not just from mental illness in general, but from depression specifically. Suicide, which often comes from severe depression, is the greatest cause of death amongst young men. Depression, anxiety disorders, with its generalized anxiety, panic disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And those labels, every one of them, account for hundreds and thousands of people who are suffering, going through agony. Let's hear from Karis, a young woman who gives her testimony on a website designed to help raise the issues of mental health, to get people to understand this better. She told the story of how she was sitting with her friends from school. And one of her closest friends said, I don't want to be involved with anybody who self-harms. And then stared at her, knowing that Karis was involved in that behavior. Karis said, it really hit home how closed-minded some people are, how we really need better self-harm education for young adults. There's that sense of distance, suspicion, rejection. Any time mental illness is raised, And then there's the name-calling, Eddie, or as he said, he was called Crazy Eddie. And when he was in his last day of primary school in West Africa, educated by English teachers, his primary school teacher said to him, in summary of his whole time of primary school, Crazy Eddie. Eddie took it as a joke. He said, I faked laughter while I was being mocked. I'd become used to it. And then he said, I beamed a deceitful smile that hid the pain and suffering that he was going through as one of the many young people that suffered from some form of mental disorder. The issue of emotional pain is as real as physical pain. And the issue of mental disorder is as real as physical pain. We are glad to talk about it. Not just in our Sunday morning services, but in our cell groups and be real with one another 
and we are preparing for a whole day of seminars on mental health awareness. You find it in the back of Revival Times here. Discover from experienced practitioners in the KT Medicine and Health Forum how you, your friends and family can enjoy good mental health and relate to those who are suffering. And I want to talk about this today under the title of Why Bring God Into It? Now that question may not be surprising to you. We're here as a Christian gathering Sunday morning. We bring God into everything. But it's not always the case, especially out there. And in this issue of mental health, there's a bit of division on it. Some of my friends who struggle with various forms of mental illness, uh, who, are, who are not yet believers in Christ, when I try to talk to them about God in relation to their suffering, they immediately reject it. What's God got to do with it? This is me. In fact, you talk about God, God is part of the problem for me because my father may reject me, my mother may reject me, but the God is certainly going to reject me and my problem is rejection anyway. Don't talk to me about God. And then, of course, sometimes when we do bring God into it, we do it in entirely the wrong way, sad to say. So, for example, Christian friend, Yours may be suffering from mental health, health issues. And I hope you've never said this. You? What? You? But you're a Christian. You shouldn't feel this way. A Christian doesn't get depressed. Anxiety? Why don't you just trust God and pray harder? Or maybe you heard that uh, somebody was prescribed some form of medication because they went to the doctor with some problem of anxiety or depression. And, and maybe they were told, oh, shame on you. Why do you just trust God? Why do you take this medicine? This, this, is, this is lack of faith. And yet we know as educated people and sensible people that the medical profession can be very helpful. And if you are prescribed medication for something, uh, particularly if it's prescribed accurately and correctly, which is to help people through, to balance chemicals in the brain so that for a short period of time, to help them through. And, and if that's the case, it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's something to be aware of. But you know, it's always those superficial answers. Oh, just pray more. <laughs> oh, don't, don't be depressed. Just praise the Lord. Trust, trust, trust God. Trust God. Or when we get most severe, ha, 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 you got to repent. If I had done what you've done over the past week, I would be depressed. Shame on you. Oh, this is another favorite. Oh, oh, you need deliverance. <laughs> well, I, I don't mock any of those things because there is a place, place to pray and, and to seek God and to trust God. But to tell somebody just do those things isn't far enough. We need to help them do more than just that because, you know, the body, when it goes into, gets difficulties, illness, we, we, we treat that, and we ought to know how to treat the mind as well. And in church life, with, with ministry to one another, it's not just something we hand over to the world, because Jesus is the great physician. He's the great physician of the body, and the great physician of the soul. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, 
who heals all my diseases. So, so there are answers in our relationship with God. Doesn't mean to say we set aside medical profession, of course not. But we have to do our part. Now, for many people in the medical profession, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists, they focus on a very important element which is either the root, in their opinion, of many psychological problems or the fruit of many psychological problems. It's this is issue of self-love. And uh, it's very popular today to examine what many people consider to be the cause of much mental disorder, and, and it's called self-love deficit. And so according to many people in the medical profession, it's a result of childhood trauma or emotional neglect, and children grow into adulthood never having received that affirmation and sense of unconditional love or respect from their parents, and they go through some kind of experience where they feel shameful, unworthy, and always needing to prove themselves and do something in order to win the approval of other people in their lives. And this can become a kind of relational grid in which it affects how they relate to others, how they view themselves, never feeling worthy enough of being loved. They either hide from others or try to prove themselves and become people-pleasers, human doings rather than human beings. And this can spiral into a descent, landing you in deep loneliness and dark depression. And so the answer, very often from the pop psychologists in particular and the YouTube vloggers, is love thyself. One popular YouTube vlogger says, honey, if you don't love yourself, ain't nobody else is going to do it. And it sounds catchy. It's there in movies and television. Uh, and I want to examine that today, which is why I turned to that passage of Scripture where Jesus speaks about love. And so my question is, while I understand where these ideas are coming from, people are coming from, I want to examine it today. And there's something that deeply disturbs me about how insufficient that is and how superficial it is and how wrong it is as an answer to all our emotional problems. But people argue, well, is this not what the Bible says? Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, that's true, but we'll examine what that means. The Bible also says, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Look not only to your needs, but also to the needs of others. And what this means is this. The way you naturally think of yourself, and we all naturally think of ourselves, when somebody shows you a picture and you're in the frame, whose face do you look at first? Your face. Oh, that's not a good picture. What you mean is you blinked or something. So in the way that you and I, as human beings, naturally think of ourselves first and think about our needs and think about what we want and take measures to get what we want, in the same way that we 
love ourselves, learn to love others. And here's the point in the Bible. Self-love is assumed. It's never something that you need to acquire. It's there anyway. So the Bible does not mean, first, learn to love yourself. And then you can love others and others will love you. No. The meaning of the Bible is, learn to love others as you already are naturally inclined to love yourself. Now, I had a perfect illustration of this. Of course, the sermon was in my mind and I had 20 minutes to spare on Friday evening. I was going to Chiswick to meet with a friend and we were going to spend a couple of hours together. It was not a meal um, and uh, I had a busy day and I hadn't yet had any lunch. I was 20 minutes early and, you know, I always arrive on time. It's impolite to be early. And so I walked up and down Chiswick High Street and something touched me. It was an aroma. Fried chicken <laughs> from Kentucky. I thought, oh, that will do nicely. You see, I was hungry. And what do you do when you're hungry? You look for something to eat. And that's what it means. The Bible says you, you, you love yourself. You, you take care of yourself. Mind you, with Kentucky Fried Chicken, you may think I don't love myself very much to eat <laughs> some of that fast food. Anyway, I was thirsty, I drank. I was hungry, I ate. So we, we are naturally inclined as human beings to, to think of ourselves and to seek to have our own needs met. But when you look at the issue of mental disorder, you see that many people are involved in destructive behaviours. And it doesn't seem that they are loving themselves. They are harming themselves. They're getting involved in things which, such as drug dependency, which actually are destructive. And you say, well, are, are they really loving themselves? Well, listen carefully. I've discovered that even when it doesn't seem that people are caring for themselves, they're neglecting themselves. They don't seem to be caring for themselves. But deep, deep beneath the surface, we discover they are always caring about themselves. It's always about the self. Self-centeredness is the root of many problems. So let, let, let's take people-pleasing. So somebody has grown up and, and developed a kind of codependency and, and they are constantly feeling that they are not good enough and they have to prove themselves. They have to earn the love of other people. It was never demonstrated unconditional love. And so they are people-pleasing, always doing things for others because they are trying to gain other people's love and respect. They are saying, I am doing something for you so that you will love me. In the end, it's always a need in the self 
It's always about the self. If you're withdrawing, you're withdrawing yourself. If you are attacking, you are defending yourself. If you are dominant and controlling, you are seeking to protect yourself or get what you want or what you need, either in a passive way or an aggressive way. What are we trying to protect here? Who are we trying to satisfy? The self. So just to say to people, learn to love yourself and everything will be all right. It's not accurate. Certainly doesn't go far enough. It's highly inadequate. Why is it so inadequate? Let me explain to you. First of all, it's inadequate because it doesn't show you or talk about identity. When we talk about the self, you've got to discover yourself. I don't mean that in a hippie way going around the world smoking marijuana in order to find out who you are. I'm talking about your own personal sense of identity. And most people today, pop psychologists and others, will will tell us you've got to discover yourself. You've got to look into yourself. You've got to examine yourself. Who are you? What am I feeling? What am I thinking? That's your true identity. But the point is, You cannot find a worst point of reference for who you are by looking at yourself. That's self-referential. To discover who you are, you need to have a reliable, fixed reference point outside yourself. And other sociologists and psychologists agree and say, no, 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 it's not about looking at who you are by looking and finding out who you are by looking inside. It's discovering who you are in relationship with others. So it's your social environment that defines you. Your psychological identity is the result of what has been formed through the influence of other people. So you look at others to discover who you are. But the problem is social standards, cultural ideas, environment, all these things are changing. They change from one generation to another. They change from one society to another. And so you cannot find out who you are when you try to base it on the shifting sands of other people's opinions. There is only one opinion that counts and that is the opinion that comes completely outside of the realm of other people, relationships, in the natural horizontal dimension. There is only one place where you can find out who you are and that's by looking above to the God who made you and created you. That's the only way. John Calvin Yeah, give God a praise. John Calvin said this very profound theologian, and also, though he wrote hundreds of years before the whole realm of psychology was, uh, was really pursued, it is so humanly, psychologically sound He says, humanity, man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation 
to look into himself. So love yourself doesn't even raise the question of who am I. It doesn't raise the question of identity and doesn't explore it or find an answer to it. Also it's inadequate because it doesn't address what the real problem is. The real problem in our hearts, all of us, is a deep-rooted self-centeredness. The problem is the self. We're too self-centered. Now, let me say, there is a right way of loving yourself. Yes, there is. When we, are, when we take care of ourselves, when we respect ourselves, and when we acknowledge that there are boundaries, and the, those are boundaries that... If people break, they are disrespecting you and you can stand up for yourself and your boundaries. That is healthy alongside self-acceptance. Yeah, you have to take care of yourself. It's vitally important and it's not unspiritual. Many years ago, I think it would have been the first flight that Amanda and I went on with our then young daughter, Elizabeth. She was, she was a child and sat down there and there we are, it's time to come to the seat belts and then the safety demonstration. And I always look very attentive and very interested in the safety demonstration. I just think they at least have one person listening to them. <laughs> and um, anyway, so the counter time says, if the cadmium pressure drops, uh, oxygen masks will appear immediately and they give the instruction, and they do a demonstration, and all that kind of stuff. And then they say, please make sure, or make sure that your own mask is fitted before helping anyone else. And in the DVD that they were showing, the video they were showing, it was a child. And Elizabeth nudged me and said, why didn't they look after the children first? <laughs> a very significant question, and the answer is simple. If you don't put your mask on and you're unconscious, you're not going to help anybody. So you've got to take care of yourself in order to be able to take care of others. Very important. When we were doing our rescue diving training, uh, we were taught in how to rescue people. Uh, you know, if you're in trouble today, I could rescue anywhere provided you're in water. Okay. Uh, on the first principle that they say is, don't put yourself at risk. Don't put yourself in any danger. And in a while you think, well, surely you have to risk something if you're going to save somebody. But the reasoning behind that is, if you get in trouble, you've got two casualties, not one. You've doubled the problem. So you have to take care of yourself in order to be in a healthy position to take care of others. So that part of taking care of yourself, if you want to call it self-love, fair enough. And that's important. But here's the problem. We tend always to be thinking of number one. That is the problem. And I think this is our real bedrock psychological problem. In, in all of us. And that is, we are self-obsessed. I don't just mean self-preoccupied. I'm using the word obsession because it's a particularly it's a psychological term. I think that's the problem. We are self 
obsessed. It's all about me. Always. That's our natural tendency. So telling somebody who is selfish to love themselves some more is to say, keep on embracing your selfishness. And, and that, that's going to get them deeper into the problem. And it's a non-solution. But the question is, who shall deliver us from this self-obsession? And where should that obsession be placed? Should we take obsession from ourselves and place it on something else, somebody else, some other person, and become some kind of obsessed person over others, or become obsessed with our work or our career or ambition or money? No, no, no. There is only one place where obsession can be cured, and that is when we love God and He comes first. He is the only solution to the self and to the problem of self. So saying love yourself more doesn't deal with self-centeredness. And and neither does it really get to the root of the answer. It doesn't get to the issue of relationship. We still are rather like the lawyer saying, what do I have to do to feel better? How can I guarantee that I can come out of this depression? What do I have to do to enjoy life? And those questions are important, but they are secondary questions. The primary question is all about relationship. The lawyer raised the question of what must I do legalistically. Jesus said love. And love is 100% relational. Do you know that One of the best descriptions of the gospel lifestyle that we aspire to is to learn to love well. Wouldn't it be amazing if somebody could summarize your life, my life, up to this point, and beyond, and say, you know what? That person loves well. And we have to learn that. So, when Jesus says, you're asking questions about the law, and he says, it's all about love. And he says, first of all, the greatest commandment, the most important matter, the most important thing to consider when we talk about love, is love for God. Uh, And that, when we examine the scriptures, flows out of a discovery. The discovery that if it was perfectly made by us, if we perfectly understood this, if we could receive this as a real revelation, not just that we can convince ourselves with our minds that God loves us, but that we know from the depth of the being that God loves us perfectly and unconditionally and eternally, that would be a good foundation for building a healthy emotional and mental life, as well as everything else. 
That is the issue. Even this talk about self-love deficit, it's no good saying learn to love yourself because if this analysis is true, the deficit comes from not knowing unconditional love. And the only way to fill up that self-love deficit, the only way to feel that you are a person that matters, that's important, that is valued, the only way to know that is to experience unconditional love. But how and where? God's love is the only perfect love. You will not find perfect love anywhere on the horizontal plane. You won't find it anywhere in any fashion in natural relationships. There are some examples of this that come close. I would suggest to you a mother's love. Wow. I've seen the effects of a mother's love that will never give up. But the Bible says maybe your mother and father may abandon you, but God will never abandon you. You know, the love that we're talking about here is a perfect love and it is not of this world. The humanists say, look on the horizontal plane and you will find answers. No, God says, look up vertically because my love is perfect my love is unconditional and that's the only source of unconditional love you will ever know. And everything that reflects that is but a reflection of it. And our life goal is to learn to love God, agape love, perfect love, love that is so focused on the other at whatever cost to the self, because it's totally outgoing and a giving love, which actually is a tremendous therapy for our self-centered way of living. So this is why we want to bring God into it. Because really, it's the only sensible thing to do because all of our problems, whether they are emotional or spiritual, come from that base of never having experienced true, unconditional love. So the full Bible quote is not Love your, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So the answer is self-love. That doesn't even, that part of the verse doesn't even mean it. And the proof of that is, Jesus says, the first and greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. So our pop psychologists and Humanist self-helpers of today never begin with God. In fact, they don't want God to come into it at all because they basically believe you can solve your problems by yourself without reference to God. 
Why bring God into it? Okay, yes, if it helps you, if it comforts you, makes you feel better, that's, then that's okay, that's okay. But really, God has nothing fundamentally to do with the solution. But Jesus says, love God first. And he says, and the second command is like the first one. It's so closely linked to it that you cannot really learn to love your neighbor until you have experienced the love of God and learned to love God. But that's important. You experience the love of God. You learn that you are loved. And then you respond to God's love. So the self-love philosophy I don't think it is at all helpful. Knowing your true self, yes. Loving your true self, yes. You see, by the way, there is a self to reject. That's all that we've become as we've fallen away from God. And there is a self to embrace and to pursue. That's your new self, which is your true self, which is recreated to be like God. It is God restoring his image in you and placing his love in your heart and that love is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and as we learn to walk by the Holy Spirit we are in his divine therapy are you in therapy today I'm in therapy thank God for that and so there is a self to deny and a self to pursue and knowing your true self and learning to honor God and pursue your true self, the self that he created you to be and the person who you really are called to be. That is a God-focused person, not a self-focused person. And when you are born again, that new nature is at work in you. Discover it. There's a God-lover inside of you. There is a person that is sold out to Christ on the inside of you. It's the Holy Spirit's nature that is given to you. And that is what gives you your motivation, your drive, and your joy. But of course, it is a process of discovery. Who you are in Christ, all that he's done for you, what he thinks about you. It's a a process of growth in maturity as you learn to love well. I think this is true. I hope I'm not exaggerating. If it's not true every day, it's certainly intentionally, my intention every day, to get out of bed and say, help me to love like you love whether it's that irritating person in the corner shop or that amazing person in the office. Help me to love well today. I think that's more or less every day that I begin a day like that. But I tell you what also is without fail And I put my head on the pillow at night and say, oh God, (laughs) help me to do better next time. It's a process. And all the while you're learning to love well, you are growing in his love and you are discovering the one 
true, meaningful, and lasting healing of your soul. And we grow and progress into what we could rightly be called a healthy mental condition. But I want to say this. Don't forget that we groan. Okay, you're looking a little puzzled. Let me help you. I'm going to tell you three jokes. None of these jokes is funny. So please don't laugh. Because you'll be laughing at me, not with me. (laughs) But if you feel it's such an awful joke, you may respond in the appropriate manner. Okay, are we ready? I love this. Here we go. When's a door not a door? When it's a jar. Okay. How about this one? Knock, knock. Some people don't know this. This is a very British thing. Knock, knock. Isabel. Isabel necessary on a bike? Okay, here's the, this will do it. I know this will work because I made this joke up myself. Knock, knock. Car. Carrot. You're laughing because it's not funny. But I know inside you're groaning right now. And we do groan. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 22. The Apostle Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. We live in a broken, hurting, groaning world. And because we are part of it, we will always groan until Jesus returns and his kingdom fully comes where every tear will be wiped away. No more sorrow, no more sighing, no more pain, no more sorrow. Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you see what he's saying? One of the marks of the Holy Spirit's present in you is not that you have come to the place where your life is so completely amazing and full that there's no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more pain, and no more groaning. In other words, we will never be fully healed in the fullness of the depth of Bible-speaking shalom and wholeness until the day of Christ. And when we have the Holy Spirit, he teaches us to groan. Yes, it's okay to groan if you are sorrowful, if you are suffering. Don't think there's something crazy about you. 
in your pain, he is present. And we want to be present because the Holy Spirit lives in us. In your pain, we want to be present. That's what church is all about. One of the big issues today is loneliness and isolation and all our internet interconnectedness and social media, while it has had some benefits, has only served to make young people more and more isolated and shut off and socially inept in face-to-face relationship that they so crave for. We have to be there. And when we come, we bring the Holy Spirit And the Holy Spirit testifies to two things. Yes, it's okay. There's not something so wrong with you because you're suffering. It is part of a broken, hurting world. But we are here to help you. And not only will he validate your emotional experience of suffering and difficulty, there is with it an added hope that is totally infallible. He says, you groan but I will help you as you groan and together I will show you how to wait and be patient for the day when that perfect manifestation of love will fill your life and change your circumstances and change everything about you. So what I'm saying is this, it is a worldly, immature thing to think that we can come to the place where we are totally happy all the time because we have everything that we want. That's not what the deal is here. But the deal is this. Everything that we go through, including the pain of mental illness, God can turn around and work in a way for your growth And not just, oh, well, God's teaching me a lesson so that I can grow. That's true. But more importantly, so that you yourself can be a source of encouragement and blessing to others who are suffering. And so when you bring God into it, make sure that you bring his love with you. For nothing else is going to help. Yes, let's give God a praise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your love is so supernatural that our puny, selfish human minds can't even grasp it. And we need your help. So I pray that right now you will shine the light of your love and bring revelation of that to every one of our hearts afresh. That kind of love that removes guilt and shame, that kind of love that takes away everything that defiles and demeans and washes and cleanses and makes us pure, that unconditional love of God, help us experience it and then by your grace, May we learn to reflect it. And especially with those who are suffering from deep-rooted emotional pain, whatever category of mental disorder 
the scientists and psychologists call it. Help us, Lord, to be there, to be a reflection of your living, breathing, healing presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Give Jesus one final amazing praise. Okay, we're going to stand and sing, and then we are all going to minister to one another in a powerful, life-changing way. Are you ready for that? I'll tell you more in a moment.